You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. Imbeciles who are canceling everything because of some one liner they don't like. Well, you know what, motherfucker? Too bad. Get over it. Eat shit. I don't care. Crawl into a hole and die. What the fuck do I care? You know what? In the moment that we cannot have equal opportunity insults, then we're finished. I love you so much, Diamante Dallas. That was amazing. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pop-Tarts. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today we have such a special guest. I'm really pinching myself. I can't believe it. Diamanda Galas is the living definition of what it means to be avant-garde. An extraordinary and genre-bending vocalist, composer, pianist, performance artist, and activist, she has been creating uncompromising work that cries out against injustice for over 40 years. Her 12 studio albums include the classic 1986 collection, The Divine Punishment, a masterwork created in response to the AIDS crisis that was just remastered and re-released in June. And her brand new album, Broken Gargoyles, inspired by the isolation of maimed World War I veterans is coming out August 26. I cannot wait to talk to her all about these new releases and everything else. Welcome Diamanda Galas to our show. Yay, you're here. Thank you. That was very good writing, by the way. Thank you so much. Diamanda, to me, your work and your performances are like something that arrived here from space or from hell or from another dimension. difficult for me as an interviewer to wrap my mind around the fact that you are in fact a mortal woman who was born in San Diego. Can you tell us just a little bit about what your early life was like and how you launched your very long career in music? I started uh, playing with my father at the house. He was my first music teacher and he insisted that I play the piano but not sing because he felt that uh, that singers were prostitutes. And <laughs> he was very, very strict about that. My brother could sing, but I could not. So in, uh, in any case, it was a very strict background. But uh, he was a great bass player and a trombone player. And so he taught me piano. And the piano playing was classical music, but also uh, jazz playing. So I learned a lot of piano playing, stride piano, uh, old swing styles from New Orleans, and also, um, you know, Chopin, Rachmaninoff. And I never really separated the musics. I just, I, anything I can hear is what I play. I don't think about the categories, I just, if I can hear it, I can feel it, then I just do it. So that was my start. I love that. And you've been playing piano since you were three, is that right? Yeah, well, so, strictly speaking, five years old. <laughs> so your start was a lot earlier in in the timeline than most people's, and you were gigging like around the time you were like 14 or so, right? Yeah, I, I, again, with my father's band, and we would go to veterans of foreign war lodges and um, a couple Navy bases. And we would play in a very strange places, very strange. I, I remember picking up the electric bass and playing a, a bass solo right in the middle of one of our gigs. You know, I don't, I don't know how to play electric bass, so I don't know what I was thinking, but it happened. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, 
I first saw you perform live here in New York, where we are, under a big circus tent at the South Street Seaport in 2008. I went to see you with my partner and with my mom, and you were so riveting and so terrifying, even though like that was, I think, comparatively speaking, a very stripped down performance with you. It was yeah. just you and a piano. At I the remember tent, at the Spiegel tent. Exactly. At the Spiegel tent. That's where I saw yeah. you. And mm. I remember just looking over at them as if to say, like, are you seeing this? Is this really real? Is this happening? And I responded to you so strongly because while your work is beautiful, it's also super confrontational and it's often frightening. And these are all things that women are never taught or supposed to be. And you are still today singing about so many injustices that people would rather not think about. Mm -hmm. So as a fan of yours and as an activist, I've always felt like I want to cultivate more of that mojo that you have in myself. Like I want that ability to say like, fuck you, none of this is okay. And I wanna be scary and I wanna actually be heard. So like, I'm so excited that you're here today because I wanna hear you talk to me about what it has been like for you, both as an artist and as a woman to be an uncompromising truth teller in this world that seems just diametrically opposed to that kind of energy, but especially from women. Again, well put, um, I would say that there is a certain rage that an individual reaches and at that point the person changes and um and becomes more feline so to speak uh -huh. as in tigers and and at that point it's it's, it's if you feel your nails becoming talons <laughs> and at that point oh, you, you are on the you're on the move to it's a kill energy it comes naturally but if that feeling does not emerge then uh then a person won't be confrontational i'm not aware that i'm confrontational i'm not aware of it on the street i'm confrontational i'm still not aware of it until a, a friend walking with me will say my god uh, or some comment to me trying to get me to stop it and uh <laughs> it's just impossible it's there's a i saw once a young lady walking across the street and she was she had a big smile on her face and she was so happy and a man jumped out on the corner in front of her and really insulted her and insulted her for who she was, who he thought she was. And she was almost in tears running away. And I thought, no, man, no. And I walked up to him and I said, man, do you, who, who do you see yourself as? What yeah. do you see yourself? Are you a gentleman or just a scumbag, man? I said, you know, you need to work on this. You have no right to destroy this woman's day because you can't control yourself. And I, what I do is I, I, I think what I use is shame mm. as an operating principle. I used to use humiliation as one, but now I'm using shame. And he, the guy followed me for about 20 blocks. It just made me laugh. He, <laughs> he, was, he was really ashamed. <laughs> Ed was looking down, but then he wanted to explain that oh. he hadn't attempted to hurt the girl. And this is what I've done recently is use shame, almost like a, a t tutorial. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> shame is a tutorial. I think that's a good one, actually. I did that. Uh, remember, Emily, when I came to the office after Kavanaugh got uh, appointed to the Supreme Court and I had gone to protest at the, um, the I forget where it was, and I was the only one there that was protesting against Kavanaugh. And I'm walking back to the train with my sign down low, and this lady hops a huge loogie, and I knew she was going to spit at me, so I pulled the sign up really fast, and the loogie hit the sign. But I was like, no, you spit on the wrong woman today. I was Thank like, you. I've got all day. I will follow you to work. And then I, oh, yes. I went to the crosswalk and she's like talking to the, I'm like, 
This woman spits on people she disagrees with. She just spits on random people that she doesn't agree with. And the crossing guard, she was asking the crossing guard for help. And he just looked at me and he goes, carry on. <laughs> that is lovely. This lady all the way into her office, some fancy building. And she's swiping her card. And I was like, your coworker spits on strangers. She doesn't agree with. <laughs> yelling for security and security was like no we're not going to get involved <laughs> i think that that behavior is what i'm talking about as far as confrontational energy which as a performer will manifest itself on the stage of course because that is the place you have to do your own uh let's see to create your own um no, to exercise, exercise, exercise your own hex. Uh, I, I, I started to say exorcise, but that would be what what one would might do with some people in the audience. But that's not something I I'm I'm looking for at all. I'm looking for um, being being able to to express my feelings in a way that is operational. And I think that sometimes I am doing hexes. Like I do a piece by Henri Michaud called Jeram, and it's really about rowing. It says, I am rowing against your life. And, and he continues to say, Jeram, 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 Jeram. And then it talks, and then the middle of it is all his lines of uh, other lines, more descriptive lines, you know, where he's talking about animals following this person around and really uh, donkeys and all sorts of animals. It's, it's a kind of a humiliating hex, but it's this, I need that. To survive. Uh-huh. Yeah. And we need you to survive. So I'm glad that you need it to survive. Diamanda, I, I mentioned in the intro that you just recently re-released a remastered edition of your album, The Divine Punishment, which when it came out in 1986, it was just a scathing indictment of the ways in which right-wing controlled America completely turned its back on the suffering of the AIDS crisis. Obviously, there are so many ways in which this piece resonates today, not only because of the horrific early days of COVID, but also because here in America, we find ourselves once again at the mercy of a conservative theocracy that's just fucking us. Tell me why, out of all of your previous works, this is the one that you've chosen to release now, and how does it feel to be introducing this music to a whole new generation? Well, in point of fact, I decided to release my records in order of appearance, ah. uh, remaster them. So, so this just happens to come at a time, uh, I suppose, in which persons who might not have understood it before will understand it now. That's that's in that just happens to be because some people t take 40 years to understand something. Mm. <laughs> I have performed Plague Mass when I, uh, when I created that work, after I performed it at St. John the Divine, there were very few places in America um, that I could perform it at. And even in Mexico, I was allowed to do one part of it, but not the rest. And in Italy, when I performed the work, I got charges from blasphemy from the Christian Democrat Church, and I was banned from performing in Italy for a long time. And this for, for a Greek is very sad because the Italians and the Greeks, you know, are very close in in temperament. And I felt I was shut, in, shut out from my own country by these fools who didn't understand what I was talking about. And it was very, for me, it was very sad. I, I suppose for others, it might be something they would be proud of. But for me, it was sad because of my relationship to the people in the country and because it was my favorite place to perform since the beginning. 
And then that ban was removed and I went back to Italy. Wow. Okay. Just wow. Yeah. <laughs> I find it singularly annoying that the persons that refuse to present the work have for the last 20 years begged me to do it. And I think, you know what? What you don't figure out, buddy, is that I'm an artist. And that means that now I'm working on something different whilst always working as an activist in the AIDS crisis, right now I am composing another work. And, you know, and, and, and you should have thought of that when you refused to present it. Yeah, well, I mean, this has got to come up for you all the time as someone who has consistently for decades been ahead of her time. I can't think of a single thing that you've released that hasn't been like so far ahead of its time that like it just years and years and decades and decades later, people are looking at it and saying, oh my God, look at that. So I, I'm sure that this is just one instance in possibly hundreds where this yeah. has happened to you. I think that this is a kind of a timeless uh, situation. I believe that the job of an artist is is to uh, construct a vision, a construct out of a vision, a material thing. I mean, by this I mean a material thing. I mean music, painting, whatever. But it's not to be confused with a person who picks up the Village Voice in the old days or the New York Times or whatever periodicals there are and decide something is fashionably, uh, you know, of our times, etc. When a person does that, the person walks backwards. The artist is supposed to point, in a sense, is supposed to live in the present and maybe I'm not comfortable with saying point towards the future. I'm not comfortable. That's a cliche, you know. I'm the voice of the future. Sounds a bunch of horse shit for me. I don't, want, I don't like that. I don't know if I'm allowed to use this. This talk. Yes, no, please do. Whatever the fuck you oh, want. Well, that's a tremendous relief, I must say, because it's 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 really uh, it's very sophomoric to talk like that, to say, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a voice of the future, buddy. <laughs> it's like, get, get a fucking, get out of my fucking view, buddy. You know, just like, let me, I'm just talking about what I see. I'm talking about what I feel and what I see. And I'm not trying to advance the population. I'm not, I'm not a politician looking for votes, so get lost. Right. Well, but you are extraordinarily prescient and that's just an indelible part of your work. It's just baked right in. I think that works. That works. <laughs> You're, I think it definitely works. Yeah. Your your new album coming out at the end of August is called Broken Gargoyles and it was inspired by the mutilated, diseased, and stigmatized soldiers who returned from World War One only to be isolated in industrial buildings until they died. Le canto a tu cuerpo, recuperas piel, vuelve el soplo, vuelve el soplo, vuelves a la vida, vuelves a la vida, vuelves a la vida. Tell me more about this project and what inspired you to devote the last, however long it took you to make this part of your life into this heartbreaking subject matter that is something that so many people would want to turn away from. I think that we can see people turning away from the soldiers that come back today. As you know, the military has always uh, made a practice of drugging its soldiers so that they can stay up for 24 hours straight. So there's many medicines that are on the market like new vigil and drugs like this that are designed to give uh, to work for people with attention deficit disorder but they come from military the mili use in the military so that a person will stay up for 
many hours as a, let's say, a fighter pilot, and and be able to be in focus. The problem with this drug, for example, along with the other kinds of drugs, or that, no, let me be more specific, that subset of drugs uh, developed for fighter pilots is that after a while, a person's extreme fatigue uh, acts along with the drug to create an extreme paranoia. Mm. Mm, yes, for sure. So what this happen what happens is these people will firebomb a plane. A U.S. plane. If they're in the U.S., they'll firebomb a U.S. plane. They'll be confused. They will. They will start to see things that are not there. Yeah. No matter what drug is used to continue to keep a person focused, after a certain hour, many hours, it will stop working. And so, this is the sort of thing that that I'm talking about on one level. And then if if these these people come back, they're maimed, they're extremely wounded, they come back, and they're asked, they're told that you may not come to the veterans hospital if you are an addict. Okay. Well, the, the drug that people use to come down from new vigil and get some sleep is morphine, mm. derivatives of morphine. So, you know, heroin and so forth. So... You're not going to come out of the military just, you're not going to come out of the military as a clean and sober person. You're not going to come out of the military as the person you were before on any level. And so what happens, uh, I, I went to a veterans, uh, for a veterans hospital under uh, false pretenses, mm. and I interviewed this guy about the care of the soldiers. Uh, you know, in San Diego, there's there's maybe 26,000 soldiers that come back, you know, at various points. And these people are not given any place to stay. And I said, well, where do they stay? And he says, oh, in, some, in their friend's backyard or in their friend's garage. I said, I see. And uh, we don't accept any addicts here. Mm. So, you know, so essentially... They are told that they will be paid a certain amount of money when they get back. They don't get the money. They have severe health issues they're, for which they are not treated, some of which lead to cancer, a terminal cancer. And what I am talking about as concerns World War One was a different type of deformation. Uh, this currently what happens is the brain it's blasted, blasted back in the skull, so it may not be something you see as a facial uh, deformity, but it is a brain deformity. Okay, uh, they might make try to make light of that, but that's nothing to make light of. It's it's the same as being of the football players that have been studied who have severe brain injuries and then kill themselves. So, what this is in World War One is the broken gargoyles, the broken faces, the mutilated faces uh, of men who who then had to withstand 20 to 30 to 40 operations on their faces over many years. And there have been lots of corny books written about their luck uh, so to to achieve a, a more normal look, and that is very fanciful, maudlin, and erroneous writing, because if you've had your face blasted apart by shrapnel or by mustard gas, uh, burned with mustard gas, it's never going to achieve uh, a look of normalcy, it's, uh, and it's going to terrify people. So what happened is a lot of these guys would be taken straight off the battlefield. They'd be given these very quick operations, very, very quick, to clean up the 
the ripped flesh on their face, and then they'd be sent back to the front lines. Oof. Oh my God. And they'd be, and they usually would not be able to be, uh, they would not be able to, people would not be able to deal with them until they uh, went to a place where there were different places, there were different artists that created metal masks for them out of tin. And they would go with their tin mask back onto the battlefield. That's what that's what we call recyclable goods. That is fucked up. Yeah, it is. There's a there's a comic uh, that it's called Broken Gargoyles. I discovered it after I did my work, and that's exactly what the soldiers are talking about in this. They're complete renegades after the war and homeless, and they're saying, "Yep." blast us apart only to make us permanent patients. It's a, it was written in, by Dalton Trumbo in uh, in Johnny Got His Gun. Uh, it was written about a patient who had no arms, no legs, no face, and was was entrapped in a a particular machine, uh, I don't know, machine, it's a covered, covered, it's like a tent uh, in his, in a room by himself, so he could not talk to anyone, and he was made available for research. Oh, my God. All he's saying in the entire period, by the end of his, by the time it's revealed to him that he has no arms, no legs, nothing, is he keeps saying SOS, he's tapping it out, so that the nurse will kill him. Oh, God. When you agree to be a soldier, you agree to be property. See, I had a roommate. um, He was in Afghanistan, and he uh, had agoraphobia before, and he thought maybe being in the military, he came from a military family, that it would help him to deal with people and stuff. But then he went... To Afghanistan and it really messed him up and they tell you you're gonna get like an apartment like a military apartment when you get out staying with me but in order to get the military apartment they made him stay in a homeless shelter and so he already had agoraphobia and he had PTSD and they go live with random strangers just that like- is wrong it, it was it, he could have stayed with me the whole time it was, they made him go to a shelter just because of how the government is. Was they would not let him stay with you? Yeah, no. Because the rules were you had to be in a shelter for a certain amount of time to get oh. the government uh, military housing. So that is, That's homicidal. It's homicidal. And I see in San Diego, you know, we have the big military base, essentially, People sleeping on the sidewalk, uh, under bridges, and, you know, searching the trash cans. And, and they're very young men. And they, it's very strange to see them. And they're very articulate. And I talk to them, and I, I, it's, it's unbelievable to me. It's unbelievable. And this is made as, as you have given me such an excellent example. It's made invisible to the public. Absolutely. They think they 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 look after the military when they get out and they just throw them away. To the wolves. It's it's to the wolves. It's it's the thing is in Australia, for example, as soon as you become uh, a soldier, you are, you agree, you agree to be property of the military, which means that when they were experimenting on anti-malaria drugs, the soldiers were their first test subjects. And they ended up with with serious medical conditions that led to death. And there was nothing they could do about it. It's it's the way that prisoners are treated in many institutions, their their property of the government and so they are subjected to research experiments because they're the property they're 
their bodies are property of the government. This is this is difficult to segue out of, but I did also want to remember to ask you, Diamanda. You you mentioned to me right before this interview that you also have a video that's going to be released soon that we're going to be able to show our listeners on our website, bus.com. Can you tell us more about that new video that you made? Oh, it's it's only a video, which all right. I was asked to do a, a television interview. Uh, you know, for, for in Portugal, and I thought, no, 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 I want to give more than that. And so, essentially, what I did is I wrote a statement about the work, the the Portuguese installation of the first part of Broken Gargoyles, and I I just taped myself talking about it, and with the face covered, and and I I wanted to be extremely specific. Because it is because people are unaware of these situations, and I felt it was imperative that I ex explain to the audiences and to people interested in the work what it was about. So I I wrote out a statement and I delivered it, and uh, you'll see what I mean when you get it. Okay, great! I can't wait. Um, you know something about you that. I, I'm so attracted to you as an artist and that I think is coming through loud and clear in this interview so far is that your whole vibe is deeply and deliciously and undeniably witchy, which has made you a goth icon for decades, even though your music is in a genre completely all on its own. What can you tell me about your attraction to and your relationship with the occult? <laughs> I, I'm laughing because I'm laughing because did you say witchy? Yes, witchy. You're like the, the head witch in charge. Yeah, I mean I'm a witchy witchy witch bitch and I'm always like Diamanda all day. Witch You know it, it's so funny because I, I never understood why, for example, the goth people were interested in me. I had no idea. It's I, a deep <laughs> a deep goth obsession. You are you are goth canon. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm laughing because when I was very young, my brother and I were standing on the balcony and we saw these uh, teenagers in black. Uh, well, they were, I guess I was 20 or 25 and we saw these teenagers in black, a lot of them walking down the street. And my, I said to my brother, what are those people? And <laughs> I had no idea that there was a movement. The weirdos. I rejected any association with any group because I don't like groups per se. I don't like to be in any group. I, I just makes me very uncomfortable. And so I, I, I saw the superficial part of it only. But much later, much later, many years, 20 years later, I saw that many of the people in this movement are, are are rejected by their families and by many things they're they feel like an abused abused people children or teenagers or whatever and when i i realized that they were using their the clothes as an evil eye to protect themselves from danger, then I felt more empathy. Because otherwise, you know, the the discussion of these people is usually very superficial. It's it's about their makeup and it's all this silliness. And whereas those things could be tremendously entertaining, it's not, it, I don't think it's why a person would become involved with that group. Do you understand? Yes. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so when you say occult, what I wanted to say in answer to that is, is a continuation of your question, confrontational, mm. and or your description confrontational. And it really getting back to the idea of rage and the idea of feeling as if talents have suddenly emerged from your hands. I love that. 
so much. Yes, and the talons also from your feet, so you're firmly rooted in the soil, which gives you a, the balance to to exact whatever fate you feel is mandatory upon the enemy. Uh, I had a dream once in which a strange man came into my life and he proved to be my attacker and I wanted to get rid of him. I, and so I joined a group of people who knew how to do that. And it's, it's not anything I would do, but anyway, in the dream, the persons gave me the materials that I needed to learn in order to get him, in order to kill him. So he would never exist again in my life, ever. He would be dead. And so uh, when I first tried this, I was very confident I had succeeded. And then one day I walked up the, these stairs and I saw these little things like fingers and eyeballs in jars. And I saw all these things, strange things, hair in jars, many things, and I didn't understand them. And then I suddenly saw the people in this group, and they were not moving. They were frozen, they, and they so there was no eye contact. It was as if I was dead to them. And I hadn't, and I was informed that I had not succeeded by seeing the man again in my vision. And then I was told what I that I had very uh, amateurly exacted the spells I was given, and I was told to do it again. And the second time, I was successful. Oh. oh, shortly after I had this dream, an evil man, it's, as is described in the essay I wrote from the dream, an evil man came into my life and I had to do the same thing. Ooh. There are no particular spells that every person in the occult, uh, let's say in different occult rituals, exacts. You know, it means many things to many people, but it's, it's, it really means esoterica in a sense. And to me, your songs are spells. They are spells that are original to you. You cast a spell Agreed. every time you open your mouth. Agree. Well, thank you. I don't think that I would ever do a song unless I felt I needed to. I would never do music unless I needed to. And I, I wouldn't do art unless I felt it's, it would save my life somehow. You know, you're about to go back out on the road to promote your new music and re-engage with your fans in person for the first time in years. So that spellbinding quality of yours is going to, you know, jump out of people's headphones and into, into an immediate space. I wanted to say first, the work will be presented as installations without me. It will be presented as, uh, let's say, a quadraphonic piece. In uh, It's been in sacred spaces. The first place it was performed was the Capellan uh, Leprosarium, which was, a, it was the leper sanctuary. Oh, and wow. The sanctuary was built in the 1200s, and it was for victims, people with the plague, and lepers. And it was used for that. It was in Hanover, Germany. And they invited me to give an installation in that, in that sanctuary, and I did that. And the second sacred space was in, um, was in uh, Braga, Portugal. And that was just a few months ago. And that was a monastery, and it was used for similar function. So this is where I'm presenting the work first. And then I will somehow insinuate myself into the work, but that's the next phase of development. It probably won't, will not happen right away. It will take some time to figure it out. Well, that, yeah. that sounds amazing both in both contexts, but I'm just wondering yeah. personally for you, how you feel about planning to go out into the world with your music again after sort of a oh, long very, period. Yes, yes, very strongly. 
there were many reasons. There have been many reasons, some of which I, I just can't tell you um, which, uh, which, I, which were the reasons I, I haven't been touring for the last four years. There's, the, there's a few reasons. I, I just would rather not discuss them. But I'm, I want very much to go back on tour. So I'm hoping this will happen. Oh, good. We're, we miss you and we love you and we can't wait to see you again. Thank you very much. You have you have such a, a dark and mysterious aura to me. I'm curious about what your life offstage looks like. Like, who do you live with and what do you do in your downtime to recharge? Like, do you have any pets or plants? I'm just so curious about like what Shay <laughs> Diamanda is all about. Well, you're talking to an asocialite. Okay. Um, that means that I'm not antisocial, although I, well, to be honest, I am kind of antisocial. <laughs> I, since my mother died, and she was my best friend and oh. confidant, since she died four years ago, I, I felt I, I moved to her house, and things, life is different. Life has been different. Living in a house with all her things and pictures and pictures that go back. It's very difficult to explain, but I'm sure we all understand it very well. So, yeah. so this is, this was one of the issues. You know, there's a process of mourning in Greek culture, and it, it's a different process. It's the ideas of expressions like closure and all these idiotic ideas are very foreign to us. We don't understand that. So as it's been easy for me to perform, to create this, continue to create this new work, that's been one thing. But let's just put it this way. I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm, I'm just figuring it out, all of it out. Okay. All right. Uh, I want to know, Diamanda Galas, are you a feminist? Oh my goodness, yes, of course. <laughs> I, my mother was a feminist. My mother was uh, involved in many wars with men in her profession. And um, many of the wars destroyed her health. Uh, so she was one of the early feminists. What was her profession? She was uh, a principal of schools, but oh. in her profession, she had to continually train while she was a vice principal for many years she had to keep training the men who would then come up as principal and it was it would never have occurred to the the person's uh, administrative that a woman could do the job so eventually she got the job but she got that job and it was all right it was she was a person who developed alternative schools for people that had been in, in detention facilities and people that that were not considered uh, student that they felt problematic could not learn. Yeah. So that's what she did. But she she was a tough broad. She would break up knife fights. She would do lots of things. She was very tough. But uh, in her last gig, she got fired because. Uh, it was thought that she was too uh, tough and that she was all these things that inaccurate. It was the men that fired her. It was the men that fired her because she went against the grain. So it would never occur to me to be anything less than a feminist. But of course, there's different meanings of the word. There are different manifestations of the word. And I don't like the weak manifestations of the word. Uh, I don't like the women who say that they're a feminist and then follow a line of submission. Yeah. You know, it's not sufficient to blame the persons who are responsible for your predicament. It's important, as I say in my songs, to have revenge, to have, yeah. to exact a punishment, and to exact a, a, 
uh, rituals by which you can live after this. To because if if you just sit and whine about what someone did to you, you're not going anywhere. So there's a certain type of woman I'm not impressed with. <laughs> there, I don't like crybabies. I don't like them much. Our last question before we let you go, it's the last question that we ask all of our interviewees on this show, and that is, whatcha watching? It is a broad pop cultural question. We're asking about books, movies, music, television, podcasts, music video. If it is pop cultural and you are consuming it, we want to know about it because it is probably very, very extremely cool. Diamanda Galas, <laughs> whatcha watching? I started listening to Elvis Presley, you know, and I hadn't really done that before. Do you know that there's the, the new Elvis biopic out, right? There's the a brand new, new Elvis. There's a brand new Elvis movie that just came out. And the guy is very Elvis. He's he. They cast it well. I'd I'd never seen him before, but he he gives the vibes, man. Oh, good. Well, yeah, it's. I it's playing in the movie theater. I as I say, I'm a bit of a. Uh, I don't go out that much, uh, if at all. So I probably would wait for it to get to me, you know. <laughs> I'm about to move after 20 years. Where should I move? I'm thinking New Mexico. <laughs> I'm oh, just well, gonna throw a, it out there because I want your advice. That's an excellent place. It's an excellent, excellent place. There was a, a great photographer. There is a great photographer who has worked, who decided to move back or perhaps he never left, and he did many, many photographs, and he, he used people from all over the city. He's known for doing uh, work with cadavers uh, that he dr would dress up. And what? The, what? I, I'm, you wait, wait. It's unbelievable what? that I forgot his name. I, it's unbelievable because I have his books. I, I don't know. It was just temporary. We'll find him. Don't worry. Oh, the internet, the internet will lead us right to him. Yes, yeah. I, I suspect so. I mean, he's great. And what what I'm saying about New Mexico is he returned and he used everyone in the city in his work. And it was such a joy for him to do that, and a joy for them when he wasn't in prison, when he wasn't in jail. But <laughs> well, back to what you're watching. I derailed us. <laughs> Yes. What else are you consuming pop culturally before we let you go? Oh, you know, I I'm I always return to Howlin' Wolf. You know, I I like that. And as I said, Johnny Paycheck. And yeah, well, oh my God, this is terribly important. Um, the Dean Martin roasts. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> the Dean Martin roasts. We will never see the likes of again. Yeah, absolute anarchy. I'm going to watch that right after this because I forgot about this. You'll never see Charlie Callis again. You'll never see Don Rickles again. You'll never see Milton Berle again. You'll never see these people, George Burns, all these people that a lot of whom came from vaudeville, you know, which was really is an extremely important art form. And so many of the artists of artists uh, came from that. Absolutely, uh, just... I, I'm Jewish, so that's my cultural legacy that I'm so proud <laughs> of and, and into. If it were not, if it were not, I don't know if this is the Ashkenazi Jews. Yes, it, they are Ashkenazi Jews to the core. That's, that's my thought. That is a gigantic in contribution to American culture, a gigantic, and we're in danger of losing it by all these imbeciles who are canceling everything because of some one-liner they don't like well you know what motherfucker too bad get over it eat shit i don't care crawl into a hole and die what the fuck do i care you know what in the moment that we cannot have equal opportunity insults then we're finished from time immemorial comics it comes from what the the agro uh what do you call it? The market, the agora in Greek. You know, agora is the marketplace. And in the marketplace, the Greeks would say, that Jew over there is trying to cut my prices over here. And the Jew would say, that fucking Greek, you know, he's doing it again. 
he's trying to sabotage my business. You know, that was not considered racism. It was considered a mix of immigrant cultures. Absolutely, yeah. I'd like and to think that if we were around back then, we would be friends insulting each other, you and I. <laughs> that, was, that was the way it was. They would come to each other's houses and they would laugh and, you know, and they would laugh at each other and they would laugh at themselves. What kind of culture do we have now? You're supposed to say, oh, no, be careful that you don't call Herman a Jew. Oh, that's a bunch of crap because the Jews I know love it. They don't give a fuck about all that nonsense. I love you so much, Diamanda Gullis. That was amazing. <laughs> Come on, for Christ's sakes, we're talking about the most important comedians in the United States. Uh, they always take jokes. You know, they always take jokes. And Greeks take jokes. And, uh, you know, Italian takes jokes. What the fuck are we talking about? What is this new culture? Ugh. <laughs> or should I say, ach? Ech, <laughs> fe, fe. You should know from it. Ugh. Ach, we use ach in Greek. Very close to the Jewish expression. It's just like, come on, you know, it's just nuts. It has truly been an honor to have you on the show, though. We appreciate you coming on so much, and we just respect and adore you more than we can say. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure for me. Nice morning. Uh, oh. Callie and I, we're going to take the briefest of breaks, and then when we come back, I'm going to ask Callie, and then Callie, you're going to ask me, what you watching? One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Hey, Pop-Tart listeners, have you been trying to record your own podcast, but you keep getting bogged down by technical problems? Luscious Logan can take the raw recordings of your show, edit and produce them to give them that rich, full body sound that you hear right now. If you have a deep need to express yourself and sound good in the process, reach Luscious Logan luscieslogan13 at gmail.com that's luscieslogan13 at gmail.com if you want to have that luscious sound essentially i started it because every female comedian i know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and i knew would make great podcasts and every male comedian i know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google Calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have dockets. We docket. all have a docket. Sex? Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> scams. I'm Caitlin Bradley Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Amazing. So smart. I mean, so smart. I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. Hello. Hi, Callie. Hey, Remy. Dude, so we just talked to Diamanda Galas, and wasn't that something? I did not expect her to be like that. Dude, I was not ready for her to be um, insanely likable. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that I liked her, but I thought she would be terrifying because she she's like really scary. Yeah, but she's not. She's amazing. She was so fucking nice and just chill. And I really thought she was going to be a tough one, but she was just the best. She is the best. I agree. And now is the time in the program where I ask you because I got to know and I want to know and I absolutely need to know. What you watching? Well, I got, you know, I've been in my abortion 
uh, bullshit. So I got into this George Carlin abortion stand-up that resurfaced that was from, I, f I forget what year, but um, it resurfaced during all this shit. And um, he talks about how um, pro-lifers aren't pro-life, pro they're anti-women. And he does this whole bit about um, like chicken eggs versus omelets. And it reminded me <laughs> of that Seinfeld episode. Remember when Poppy pees on the couch and they debate over where whether a pizza is a pizza when they put it in the oven or if it's a pizza when a pizza is a pizza when it comes out of the oven? I, I did not watch Seinfeld. Like, I'm like, as a Jewish person, I found it too anxiety. <laughs> well, in this episode, there's this whole like bit about this pizza because, um, Kramer's making these like personalized pizzas. And he wants to put weird things on him. And Poppy owns this pizza place. And Poppy is yelling that a pizza is a pizza when it goes in the oven. And Kramer thinks a pizza isn't a pizza until it gets out of the oven. And Elaine is dating this moving guy who ends up to be anti-choice. And then Elaine's bitching it out of the bar and finds out that Poppy's anti-choice. And it's this whole pizza-like metaphor um, I went to go see, uh, on a lighter note, <laughs> I went to go see Marshall the Shell with shoes on, screening with Jenny Slate, um, opened up for it, and it was the fucking cutest thing, and I think everybody cried, and for those that don't know about Marshall the Shell, okay, it's so cute, so Jenny Slate had started this YouTube video thing about this little shell that wears shoes, and, um, her whole family gets disappeared disappears and it's just her and her grandma and um it's just so obnoxiously innocent and adorable and I was watching an interview with her with someone and she in order to do she does this teeny tiny voice and to do the tiny voice she has to put her finger in the ear every time because she speaks so small she can't hear herself <laughs> it's so cute you will cry don't watch it on your fucking period at all. <laughs> and the last thing I was watching is this show, The Godfather of Harlem, on Hulu that my friend got me into, stars Forrest Whitaker. And I love Forrest Whitaker because he's Ghost Dog. And I, I love him. I fucking love him. So it's based on, in the early 1960s, on this uh, crime boss. It's based on a true story, but you know, like they changed some shit. So this crime boss, Bumpy Johnson, he was in prison for like 10 years and he comes out and tries to like get back in the game. But now everything's controlled by the Italian mob, the Genovese family. And then he ends up um, meeting Malcolm X. And the guy that plays Malcolm X looks so much like Malcolm X. It's the same, Nigel Thatch. Like before he even said it was Malcolm X, I was like, this bitch looks like Malcolm X. What have you been watching, babe? Well, the first thing that I was watching was something that you recommended. I actually got around to watching Lizzo's show, Watch Out for the Big Girls. It's so good. It's this competition show where 13 plus size dancers like are all competing to be backup dancers for Lizzo on, on tour and at Bonnaroo. And it's like, these girls are so good at dancing. And they, not only that, but like as a plus size person, it was so amazing to watch like a whole screen full of like all different fat girls and really cute like dance outfits every single episode. After moving out of my apartment, I'm like, I don't think I could keep up with them big girls. Absolutely not. No, they're really, really good. And the show made me feel hopeful and good about myself. And like, it gave me inspiration to move my body. And the exciting thing is um, just recently they had the nominations for the, the Primetime Emmy Awards this year and uh, Watch Out for the Big Girls got six nominations. And then also on Amazon, Amazon's doing, doing the most lately. I watched the sixth season of The Kids in the Hall. Season five of Kids in the Hall ended 27 years ago. And now there was an unexpected reunion and season six came out on Amazon Prime. It had like the whole original cast, Dave Foley, Kevin McDonald, Bruce McCullough, 
Mark McKinney and Scott Thompson, they're all in there. And um, yeah, I just, I grew up with them. I watched them in the early 90s and it was so good to see them again. And I also was overstimulated because two of them, I believe it was Bruce McCullough and Kevin McDonald were naked in the first episode. Oh yeah. I was like, naked Canadians, naked Canadians. They had they had average adorable penises and I appreciated them. <laughs> adorable penises. And then the third thing I'm watching is actually what I'm listening to. I'm listening to a podcast called Two Hip Chicks, spelled H Y P, and the hip in Two Hip Chicks stands for hypnosis. Oh, I like. Yeah, I I like fell into a little bit of like a K hole this past week where like I was nosing around the internet like for prurient reasons and I stumbled across something called hypno kink which I'm sure like I I had noted in passing but like I didn't realize what a thing it was that like people in like the kink community are learning hypnosis and are hypnotizing each other into having into all kinds of things like either having bigger orgasms or like thinking that someone's touching them when they're not or like relaxing them and like bypassing their hang-ups and inhibitions. my wizard like my wizard does this seven person he does i don't know if he technically calls it hypno kink but he's been doing hypnosis for a long time he hypnotized me back in the oh it's like years ago to try to figure out what i wanted to do Oh, I forget what I was up to, but then he was like, we also do these hypnotherapy, hypnosis parties where like, they're like sex hypnosis. And I was like, low key pass on that. But that sounds crazy. I went to some, yeah, I where they were just like nap parties and they would hypnotize people and then bring them back. And it was like, not sexual, but then there <laughs> were other ones where people would like get sexy. Yeah, obviously consent with this stuff is really, really important. Like everybody needs to totally be comfortable with the person that they're with and giving consent and all that stuff. But this show is so funny because like the first the shows aren't the episodes aren't that long. They're like 20 minutes. And the first like 15 minutes is them talking about like a hypno kink topic. Like I remember like one of them was like ropes and how you can incorporate ropes in hypno kink. Like I think they're the hosts of it are their names are Sleeping Girl and CC Kitten, and Sleeping Girl is the, the dom. Those are ridiculous names. Yeah, and okay. CC Kitten is is the femme, and they're like you know they're like lesbian sex partners, and like I guess Sleeping Girl created some kind of um, a hypnotic trigger where when she ties up CC Kitten, like the feeling of the rope makes her go into a trance. I'm not sure if this is like LARPing or if it's real. Like I can't tell if these girls are like pretending to be brainwashed and hypnotized or if they're just like, or if someone actually has like hypnotic skill. I can't really tell. I don't care, but I can tell you that. <laughs> well, when I was very like I could still tell like, when people were walking through the, the room, I was still aware of, like, the surroundings. So it wasn't like I was, like, out of my body or anything. It was just like I was in a deep chill, you know? Yes, exactly. Like, you can, in this, the last part of the episode, you get to hear Sleeping Girl hypnotize CC Kitten. And I was listening to it, you know, like, laying back and relaxed with my eyes closed. And, like, when Sleeping Girl does it, like, I get real floaty. I get, like, this floaty feeling. It kind of feels like, um, like, I, I meditate pretty regularly, and it, it feels like if I'm really, like, having a good meditation day where I'm, like, observing my thoughts instead of being in them, and I, I'm, my consciousness is sort of, like, somewhere else other than in my thoughts. Yo, you got to hit up the wizard. He'll hook you up. nice yeah I'm like I I found the subject fascinating and I was happy to discover the two hip chicks podcast there's like a lot of episodes I think there's something like 85 or something so I'm gonna slowly work my way through them but not 
while operating heavy machinery or driving or even like by walking down the street because like I get very mellow at the end of that program. It's like when I smoke indica. It's a wrap for me, baby. Right. Right. Um, and the last thing that I've been watching is the Majestic Pop Tarts Patreon page. Yay! We need all of your help to keep Bust alive now more than ever, honestly, you guys, seriously. And hopefully you'll be excited by the goodies that we've hooked up for Pop-Tarts listeners at patreon.com slash Pop-Tarts podcast. Callie, you and I, with help from Team Bust, have been typing up show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include links to what everybody has been watching for all of our episodes. I think we're up to like one. 30 something for sure and we've <laughs> got ad free episodes available there's exclusive content on there including an amazing episode we taped with big frida and so much more please check it out at patreon.com slash podcast i would also like to thank our luscious producer and sound engineer logan del fuego muy caliente logan and our girl gang at bust magazine you can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily, but you cannot find Callie on social media, so don't try, right? No, 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 no. But you can email us both. I'm at Emily Rems at bust.com. Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, and we super duper appreciate it. Until next time. Mm-hmm. Ah. Well, that was a long smacker on your end.